We have a lot of work to do, so grab a Bible if you brought your own. If you didn't, there's a Bible under the seat in front of you somewhere. And turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 6. And when you get there, if you could stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. Colossians 2, verse 6. We're going to read all the way down through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, there is so much packed into this text. Um, Please help me to speak it accurately. And Lord, as I speak, would your Holy Spirit work through um, out this room to encourage, to comfort, to challenge, to convict. Um, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to guide us. Um, I am not sufficient for these things. None of us are. But, but because of your Spirit, we are enabled to understand what you have for us here in the Word. Help us to understand what Paul was saying. Help us to understand what you are telling us today. God, I ask for anyone in this room who doesn't know whether or not they are forgiven, who doesn't understand the cross, who doesn't understand what it means to be raised together with him. Father, that the glories of this passage would shine through today and that they would see their sin and kneel in repentance and faith before you, trusting in your sacrifice to save them. Father, we want to lift up Jesus Christ this morning. We want him to be all in all. We want him to be the one we worship and glorify. We want him to be the one that is shown to be so great. So, Father, would you do that through your Holy Spirit this morning as we study the text? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, we have a lot to cover. Um, I think Ron likes getting out of town and giving me the hard texts. So uh, we will have a good round with this. I told a few people in the office this week that I had pared down my sermon from an hour and a half to only an hour and 20 minutes. So hopefully you're awake and ready to go. That means we'll be done a little before noon. If you're visiting, that's a joke. Um, but we're going to dive in here. There's a lot to cover. Um, circumcision, forgiveness, uh, elemental spirits, all kinds of good stuff to dive into. And so we want to do that. Now, if you have your notes that are in your worship folder, pull them out. I will try to keep on track um, as we go through this great passage. Now, we've been studying Colossians for uh, a little more than a month now. And what we've seen so far is Paul's camping on the subject of Jesus Christ 
as Lord of the universe. Um, And the reason, especially today we're going to see, and next week as well, is because the Colossians were caught up in an area of the world that had to deal with syncretism. Um, Syncretism is a blending of different beliefs all into one. And so you see this happen even today. Um, One of the big things that missionaries have to fight, especially in tribal areas, um, is, is the understanding that as the gospel comes in and as the truth of God comes in, there must not be a blending of the two beliefs. There must be uh, an expelling of the old belief and a turning to this new belief in Christ. And so what would happen in Colossians, in, in the Colossian, Colossian area, uh, was a syncretism of belief. And it wasn't just two beliefs, it was a multiplicity of beliefs. And so Paul here in this text is going to hammer home Jesus alone, Jesus is sufficient, Jesus is God, Jesus is the one we trust and not the elemental spirits, and not anything else in this world. And he's going to say it again and again and again in order to help the Colossians understand what's going on. Now, the question for us is, why does that matter 2,000 years later? And we're not, we're not like clean from syncretism. Um, we are not, uh, just because we're modern or postmodern, um, unaware of the syncretism going on around us. Um, Astrology is a huge thing in American culture. We've had um, national leaders who have consulted um, the Zodiac for help. Uh, We have, um, many of you grew up, became Christians in the 70s when the New Age really began to take hold. And so we have um, this blending of beliefs and ideas that happens all around us that we need to be on guard against. So as we see this passage, I would ask you, don't, don't just say, Wow, the Colossians needed that. Let's say this morning, wow, we need this. Um, This is for us. So let's look at, at point number one. It's not enough to receive, we must follow through. That's point number one in your notes. It's not enough to receive, we must follow through. And that's verses six and seven, which is a transition passage. Remember, Paul wrote this letter. Uh, We call it a book, but Paul wrote this letter to these people. They would have probably read it all at once at first in front of the whole congregation. And they would have heard this all the way through. We break it up into chunks so we can understand um, what was going on at the time. So as we get to this transition passage, it, it kind of transitions us from the first section of the book where he's, he's being very encouraging to these, these people he's never met. Paul did not plant the church of Colossae. He's being encouraging. He's praying for them. He's telling them that he's praying for them. He's telling them how much he loves them and loves the church of Jesus And here he begins a transition from um, encouragement to more admonition, to some warnings, to some commands, to some directives for them. And this really is the heart of the book. Um, Everything's led up to this point and everything will flow out of this point. So in saying it's not enough to receive, we must follow through. um, Look at verse 6. The reason uh, there is, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Um, This is not just in a way we would think of it maybe as receiving Christ as Lord and Savior in the salvation, justification um, event. Uh, This is a a technical term for receiving tradition, right? So so many of you have passed down tradition to your children that that was the same exact thing that your parents said to you, that their parents said to them, that their parents said to them, that either in tradition or maybe in your family culture, the way your family works or around holidays— Uh, And so this is more than just receiving Christ as Lord. This is receiving a brand new message. When Epaphras came into Colossae, they didn't know about Jesus. 
Um, they had not heard the gospel. And so Epaphras comes in and preaches the gospel to these people. And they've received this message. More than that, they've also received Christ himself. Look at verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. It's funny how this works out. Uh, I got to preach uh, a little more than a month ago on the beginning of Colossians. And if you remember, I explained Jesus, Christ, and Lord. Those three terms that are used here. Um, Jesus being uh, the name of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Um, when he came to this earth, Joseph and Mary named him Jesus, which means um, God will save or salvation of God. Christ is not his name. It's not a curse word. It is a title, meaning anointed one, meaning Messiah. This is a, a glorious title saying this is the promised one who the prophets preached about for hundreds of years who came and fulfilled all that God had told the Israelites about. And then Lord is an important term. Um, we don't often camp on this, but, but Lord means master. Um, it is very relevant in a slave-master relationship in the New Testament times. The New Testament describes us as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we see that they've received not just a, not just a person, um, they've, not, they've received not just a message, they've received the actual Lord of the universe, the Savior of the world. And because they've received him, they must follow through. There must be a response. So whenever the gospel is shared, whenever the truth is presented, there is always a response. Um, the response may be ambivalence. In one ear, out the other, heard it before, la da la la uh, the response may be outright rejection, which sometimes is accompanied by anger, um, a rejection of the message. Um, sometimes, praise the Lord, there's acceptance of the message. There's repentance and faith in response to the message. And that's what I want to camp out on today. You need to respond to this text. This is not just head knowledge. This is not just learning about an ancient culture. Adrian Rogers said that his goal of every sermon was that people would leave mad, sad, or glad. Um, mad because they don't like the content of the message. We don't want anyone leaving mad because they don't like the, the messenger. Uh, we want the message to be the one that offends, if that is, if that is what God has. Um, also, there is sometimes a sadness, uh, perhaps, at hearing the message of Christ. Um, at, at maybe saying, I don't, I don't measure up, I don't understand. Um, but the best response would be today that you would leave glad. Glad that this message is for you and glad that if you have responded already, that God was gracious in that response. And if you have not responded, that today you would respond in repentance and faith and leave glad because your name is now written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so the response here for the Colossians is as they've received Christ Jesus, so walk. And the next phrase is what? It's in the Bible. Walk. Wow. Okay, we're tired this morning. Walk in him. Walk in him. And this is the first of six in hymns in these ten verses. Uh, this is part of the sermon series title, In Christ, In Him. And it's emphasized throughout the book. But here we've got a concentration of it. It's all put into this part. So walk in him. If you have um, the NIV, it says live. Uh, this is a term that the uh, the Greeks would use. They'd say walk, and it wouldn't necessarily always just mean literally walking down the road. It would mean 
living, how you live. So walk in him. Clearly, Paul is not telling uh, the Colossians that they need to walk physically only in him. They're to live in Christ. Uh, And that seems a little abstract. What does that mean? Live, walk in him. A very important point here is that because the Colossians have been saved, because they have believed, because they have received the message of Jesus Christ, they are now to walk in Christ. And that'll be uh, explained as we continue to go on here. But the way that their life should be regulated, the way that their life should be understood, the way that their life should be lived is in Christ. Um, There is no part of our lives now that gets separated from Christ. You're not a Christian at church on Sunday and just a ho-hum regular person at at work. You're a spirit-empowered, spirit-indwelt Christian all the time. And so our lives should reflect that. So as you've received Christ, so walk in him. Another important point here is we see all these verbs that are stacked up. Some of them are active and some of them are passive which is very important. And some of you are like, I didn't want an English lesson. But this is really important to understand. Look at that word walk. That's a command. It's active. Walk in him. You must do this. You must walk in Christ continually. It's in the present tense. That means not just now, um, not just schedule time during the week, but continually walking in him. Verse 7 gives us a new verb, rooted. And uh, you'll recognize that this is where Ron got the idea for rooted readings uh, more than two years ago. Um, It's also part of the sermon series title, To Be Rooted in Christ. And we see rooted is a passive verb, which means the Colossians, and by extension us, we're not to be the ones rooting. Um, we We are being rooted. The action is upon us. The action is not ours. So being rooted is implicit that God is the one doing it. God is the one who's rooting us. And that picture of rooted, what does that bring to your mind? Trees, growth, planting, gardens. Yeah, we we see the roots going down into the soil. Uh, We know from experience and from other scriptures that if there are no roots, what happens to the plant? It dies. And so this is a very um, understandable metaphor that they are to be rooted. The roots are to be going down and that to trust God to do that. The next verb is built up. Um, that's also passive, implying that God is going to be the one building. Just like in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is the one who is doing it. And the, the metaphor changes. So we have rooted, garden. Now we have built up, building. Okay, so um, you got to stick with Paul. He likes to change metaphors mid-sentence. But he says we should be rooted, okay, and then we should be built up. What does a building sit on? A foundation. It is from the foundation that the walls can go up, that the roof can be supported, that the, the whole structure goes up. And so on the one hand, we're to be rooted. On the other hand, God is building us up into a building um, like it talks about in First. Peter. This is also a present tense verb, which means you're not just built once and, oh, there's the house. It's done. This is kind of like some of your homes continually being built, right? There's continual projects going on that that it's a continual thing. It's continuing to be built. And so we are not built once. Boom. Okay, we're done. Um, God's working on us. And sometimes that means uh, tearing down walls and building up something new. 
And that's what God is doing. He is building us up. And you'll notice that we're built up in him. Here it is again, the second time. We're built up in him. We're not built up um, in our character away from Christ. We don't grit our teeth, clench our fists and try to do better. Um, We have to be built up. We have to be rooted in Christ. See, if we try to be built up or rooted in something else, it's not a sure foundation. It's like Jesus' parable of the building on the sand and building on the rock. We must be built up in him. Next, established in the faith. Again, it's passive, meaning God is the one doing it. God is the one doing it. He's establishing us in the faith. That does not take away our responsibility to work on this, but primarily, initially, God is the one who is establishing us in the faith. In the faith. That means in the beliefs of the Christian faith, in the doctrines that we hold to. Um, It is absolutely crucial that we understand what it means to be a Christian. It's very helpful for us. Boy, even this election year, um, we have a a Mormon running for president. What does that mean? What do Mormons believe? How does that affect us as Christians? How should we think about this? Um, If we're not established in the faith, maybe it doesn't matter that much. Um, To understand what we believe, to understand and know the faith that has not only come to us, but been passed down generation by generation by generation. And the faith that in some parts of the world gets Christians killed. Um, In Nigeria right now, I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, the media doesn't cover this much, but in Nigeria, Christians are being killed all the time right now. Uh, There's a Muslim terrorist group that this last week threw two grenades into a church service. Can you imagine that back door opening and two grenades flying in here? What would that do to our faith? What would that do to our congregation? Their their building is gone. They lost dozens of people and others are are wounded. This faith is not an abstract thing. (laughs) Um, There sure are some things that we think about abstractly, but if it stays in the abstract and doesn't come down into our lives and become concrete, then what good is it? So we must be established in the faith. And, and Paul adds this, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. So everyone sitting in this room, as of today, you're being taught. And so as you're taught, you're to walk and God will root you. God will build you up and God will establish you in the faith. And we follow the teachings. And so what you ought to do today is not accept everything that I say. You should check it against God's word. You should check it against God's word. Anytime anyone teaches you the scriptures, um, it should be checked against God's word, not against opinion or against popular thought. Lastly, we get an active verb. So we have a sandwich. We have an active verb at the beginning, an active verb at the, at the end, and in between, three passive verbs. And it ends very practically. We're to abound in thanksgiving. Now this word abounding, and some of your Bibles may say overflowing, um, the, the picture is a jug, okay, or a cup, and, and the pouring of often of wine or of water, and the overflowing. It just is coming out. You can't stop it. Does that describe your life? People are like, man, they just can't stop being thankful. Is that what your coworkers say about you? Do you have a thankful spirit that just can't help but bubble up and overflow? As we're going to see in the next few verses, we ought to. We ought to be abounding in thanksgiving. 
there are so many things to be thankful for. Just think of this morning. The bed you slept in. The breakfast you ate. The refrigerator that kept your juice cool. The closet with your clothes in it. The vehicle that got you here. We have much to be thankful for. And that's just the outer blessings. Not even mentioning the salvation that we're going to study here. So we ought to be a people that abound in thanksgiving. As he moves on into verse 8, you'll see point number 2 is be on your guard. Be on your guard. This is a war we're in, folks. Um, in, in wartime, uh, you need to be protected and you need to be on your guard. And that's what Paul says to the Colossians in verse 8. See to it, command, see to it that no one takes you captive. Another word used for kidnapping or for taking um, the, the treasure off of a ship and piracy. See to it that no one takes you captive. And check this out. By what? Philosophy and empty deceit. And this is really important. Um, the word philosophy means lover of wisdom. It's a Greek word. Uh, and in our day, philosophy usually applies to um, different setups, different understandings of how the world works. Um, and in, this, in the same way, their world had, had it too. Platonic uh, philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, and many others. But this word doesn't just cover like the discipline of philosophy, like your, your philosophy class. This word was used to cover a whole scope of things, including um, magic, including um, drugs, including the kind of different understandings of how the world works. And so a better way to understand what Paul is saying, in the Greek it says, by the philosophy. So Paul's not blanket statement shooting down philosophy. Go read the book of Romans. Um, Paul has a philosophical mind. He's not shooting down philosophy. He is shooting down the philosophy that was in Colossae that was leading the people astray. And he describes it in the next phrase as empty deceit or vain deception. It's lacking. It's void of any truth. In fact, it is deceptive. There are lies being told. And you'll see the next uh, few ver- the few words say according, according, and not according. And so he qualifies this statement. And he says, Let no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. He says, if it's just human tradition, it may have some value in and of itself, but it does not have ultimate value for a belief system, for understanding the world. If it's merely human tradition, like Jesus railed against with the Pharisees. He said, you've put your tradition, the tradition of the elders, in place of God's word. So that in Jesus' time, some Jews were able to say, I can't help support my parents because I've dedicated this money to God. They had put the commandments and traditions of men ahead of the commandments of God to love their neighbors. And so if our philosophy is according to human tradition only, Paul says, watch out, be on your guard. The next phrase is really, really interesting and really important. According to the elemental spirits. Now, if you have the ESV, that's what it says. If you have the NIV, it says basic principles. Some other versions say elemental spiritual forces or spiritual powers. There's a disagreement on exactly what is meant here. Um, But a lot of what's going on here is Paul is appealing to the beliefs in the area of Colossae. Let me read to you some of what the people believed. Uh, One, there was a sizable Jewish population in the area who did not live in the land of Israel. 
There were also gods and goddesses worshipped at Colossae, the Ephesian Artemis, the Laodicean Zeus, the local moon god, the, the local moon goddess, the Egyptian deities, Isis and Serapis, Athena, Demeter, and other uh, Greek and Roman gods and local gods were worshipped in temples in Colossae. Um, and, and these gods and goddesses were to be feared. Um, rarely was the word love used with these gods and goddesses. We sing of God's love. We speak of God's love. Not so, for the most part, with these gods and goddesses. They were believed to act violently when they were angry. They reacted quickly. The people were scared of these gods. There was also a local animist belief, the belief that there, there were gods or spirits in the rocks and gods and spirits in the trees. They even believed in specific gods of specific intersections. So think about you're at, I don't know, Garden Grove Boulevard and Harbor. These people believed that there was a spirit controlling that intersection of traffic. And they needed to appease that spirit. Now imagine if you're, go- you're walking a long ways and you get to another intersection. You've got to deal with a completely different spirit. Now imagine what kind of fear took hold of these people when they traveled across their city. This was in their minds all the time. There was also belief in the stars and in the, in the bodies in the heavens, the astrological fate. They had a way of dividing the 360 degrees of the sphere into 10 degrees each. So there were 36 demons in charge of each 10 degrees of the zodiac. Um, They had an incredible belief in these things. They also believed in angels and they call on them for protection. And what had happened is they had mingled Jewish belief. So you'll see in some of these texts, Michael and Gabriel are called upon. They even sometimes take names of God and make them into like demigods or partial deities. And they begin to call on these gods for help. And they even wear amulets and they would speak spells and charms to try to appease these spirits. So these people's lives were dominated by spiritual warfare. The life that you trained your kids, when you get to this intersection, say this prayer. When you get to this intersection, appeal to this angel. This dominated their lives. They thought about it with the crops. They thought about it with childbirth. They thought about it with all the things that had to do with life. So they were dominated by fear. What Paul is saying is, if this philosophy in Colossae was acted upon, was started by uh, human tradition, the real thing behind it was demonic activity. It says, not according to the elemental spirits of the world. These people lived in constant fear. They called it the stoicheia. The heavenly bodies or the demonic forces. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that human tradition doesn't take you captive and that the elemental spirits of this world don't take you captive. Next he says, and not according to Christ. Christ is the benchmark. Christ is the way that we understand truth. Christ is the way that we have discernment in this area. We must depend on Christ for discernment of the spiritual powers. He is the key in this. As we move to verses 9 and 10, we see that we're filled by the full one. This is phenomenal. This is phenomenal, and this is eminently practical. Look at verse 9. For in him, it's the third time, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Wow, we could stop there and go for the next few hours. 
What's he saying? Well, part of the belief in this area was that there was a fullness. The Greek word is pleroma. There was a fullness and different gods got different parts of the fullness. So a lot of these places had like a chief god, okay? And then there were other gods underneath that chief god. And so sometimes they believe that there was a fullness that was divided up. So this god had 30% of the fullness. And this god, uh, he only got 6%. And so this fullness of deity was split up between the different deities. Paul is saying, Jesus is the fullness of deity. There's no splitting up here. Jesus doesn't share deity with anyone else. Jesus is God. In him, the whole fullness of deity, check this out, dwells bodily. Now, this is important again because a lot of people in this region had this this very distinctive um, polarizing understanding of human nature. Your spirit is good because it's not tainted by flesh, by material. And so this belief had also crept in. You see all these beliefs just coming in together and mishmashing together into the syncretism? So what Paul is saying is, Jesus is man, Jesus is God, and it works. He's not partially God, he's not made God at a certain time. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. And he's fully man. This also appears in John 1.16. John says, from his fullness we have all received grace Upon grace. It's similar to 2 Peter 1, where Peter says, We have become partakers in the divine nature. The fullness of Jesus Christ as God, as deity, leads us right into verse 10. And look at what he's saying to the Colossians. They're surrounded, they've been raised in all this folk belief, all this magic, all these amulets, all this mishmash of religions. And he says, And you. Colossians who live in this region, this area, you have been filled in him. So he says, Jesus is fullness of deity and you've been filled. So if Jesus is is the fullness of deity, we've been filled in him. Here's what he's saying. Jesus is God and you share in his divine nature. Let me be very, very careful here. I'm not saying you're God or a little God. Okay, but by participating with Christ, we have been filled in him. And the next phrase helps us understand this. Who is the head of all rule and authority. If Jesus is the head, Jesus is the authority in charge. He's over these rulers and authorities. That means that Paul is saying, you don't have to fear these spirits anymore. You don't have to live in fear that when you go across Harbor and Garden Grove, you have to have a certain amulet and speak a certain spell. Jesus is over all of that. And because you're in Jesus, you share in that authority. Now, again, we have to be careful. That doesn't mean we brashly run around saying, I'm in Christ. Spirits, fear me. We don't do that. But we also don't go the other way and live in constant fear of spirits, of demons, although they are real. We live in a world where we believe that there are demons actively seeking to do what their their chief Satan does, and that's to look around like a roaring lion trying to find people to devour. But we don't need to fear them anymore. We don't need to fear them. We have assurance that as believers, we share in the filling in Christ. So much here. 
But we need to move on to, to the last point, point three. Believers have come from death to life. Believers have come from death to life. So if you grow up scared of spirits all the time, if you're scared of fate, if you're scared of the stars, if you're scared of death, this is what Paul has to say to you in verse 11. In him, see again, in him, in him, in him, it always comes back to Jesus. It always comes back to Christ. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What? What's going on here? Um, circumcision, of course, is, is key in the Old Testament. Go to Genesis 17 and see where God has already made his covenant with Abraham and he's going to seal it and signify it by circumcision. So every Jewish male was to be circumcised on the eighth day as a signifier, as a mark that they were the covenant people of God. Uh, helpful um, understanding here of circumcision, circumcision that will take us into the, the rest of the passage. John MacArthur says this, the cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. So see the symbolism. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin. Inasmuch as that is the part of man that produces life. So I, this may be gross for you, but understand exactly what's going on. The, the, the issue is Paul is saying that there's a spiritual circumcision. It's taking away flesh and it's marking you out as the people of God. He says, and all that he produces is sinful. And so even in God's design for circumcision, he was going to the very organ of reproduction that produces life and, and cutting off flesh to mark these people out as the people of God. And so Paul says to Gentiles who aren't circumcised, you've been circumcised. With what? A circumcision made without hands, meaning not a literal, physical circumcision. So what's he talking about? Well, most Jews in the first century saw circumcision as a fundamental identity badge for membership in God's people. If you're circumcised, you're one of God's people. If you're not circumcised, you're outside. You're outside. So what Paul is doing here is he's including Gentiles by saying it's not about outward circumcision. In fact, you can go to the Old Testament and see that circumcision was never meant to save. Circumcision was never meant to say, okay, you're circumcised, boom, you're in. Don't have to do anything, don't have to obey God. If you go to Leviticus 26, if you go to Deuteronomy 10, if you go to Jeremiah 4, the Lord in the Old Testament talks about circumcision of the heart. And so circumcision is a, is a graphic way of saying we need flesh removed. So check out where he goes from there. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. And Paul refers to this in the book of Romans. He refers to this in the book of Galatians that there's this, this fleshly part of us Okay, that is inherently sinful. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says you're a new creation, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Beautiful verse. Here's the deal. We still are trapped in this flesh, right? You feel it. Um, you feel it. This is not good enough. Because of the curse, because of the fall, we need a new body. So go ahead and read 1 Corinthians 15 and see the promise that that 
in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will not just be a soul playing some weird harp on a cloud with a weird robe on. You will bodily inherit the new heavens and the new earth in a new body like Jesus' resurrection body. All this comes together in understanding that by putting off the body of flesh with a spiritual circumcision, believers are new people. Spiritual circumcision has made believers a new, new people. He moves on and says a very cryptic phrase, by the circumcision of Christ. Um, there's, there's a lot of conjecture here. Um, it is true that Jesus himself was circumcised. He was Jewish. On the eighth day, his parents took him in. It happened. Don't think that's what's happening here. Don't think that's what's being referenced. So some would reference this um, as Jesus' death, saying that the flesh was stripped in his death. Um, Truth is, I don't know. (laughs) I studied all kinds of opinions here, and it was difficult to understand exactly what's being said. But in circumcision, we see spiritual circumcision here, not literal, because two things that spiritual circumcision does, it includes women, Okay, And it also pictures for us what's actually happening on the inside in our soul, which we cannot see invisibly. Verse 12, he, he changes the metaphor. So we've got to follow. It's really hard to follow here. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Right? Right here, we have a baptistry. Um, we fill it up with water periodically, and we dunk people to say that they are believers in Christ, identifying with his church, and the, the act itself is a very helpful understanding. When, when Pastor Ron or myself or someone else grabs someone to baptize them, they're going underwater. If I hold them underwater, they will die. So it's a real helpful way of seeing that. And then when we bring them up, they're praising the Lord, it's coming up, and there's new life. It represents death, burial, resurrection. And so Paul is now changing to this metaphor. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Jesus died, was buried, and literally rose again. Our baptism depicts that. We go down into the water as, as we died with Christ. We're raised out of the water to symbolize our new life, to symbolize coming to life just as Jesus died, rose, and came to life. And we see here, he emphasizes the powerful working of God. Again, to a people that were scared of the spirits. God is powerful, and he works in, this, in these ways. Now, um, Presbyterians and Congregationalists and Methodists have used this passage to um, emphasize infant baptism. We don't have time to get into that right now, but just so that you know, this is a key passage for the debate between believer's baptism and infant baptism. But we got to move on. Verse 13. This is the best part of the passage. And you, who were dead in your trespasses. What do dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. They're dead. They're gone. Okay, A dead person cannot do anything. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but you don't go to a funeral where there's a body and you don't expect the body to do anything because they're dead. This is a hugely important symbol for us to understand. When you're not in Christ, you are spiritually dead. 
Dead people don't do anything. And so Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, which is either a reference to the fact that they're Gentiles or a reference to that they were unclean in God's sight. Either way, it works. What did God do? He made alive. Who did? God did. It is God who saves. It is God who rescues. God made alive, check this out, together with him. With whom? With Christ. So just as Christ was made alive after he had died and been buried, so God made alive us, we, together with him. Because check this out, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So he's saying to a bunch of Gentiles, as a Jewish man, to a bunch of Gentiles, you're included, we are included in the people of God. He says you, and then he says us. So he points out, you guys, Gentiles, now it's us. It's not you and we, okay? It's all of us, together. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That is incredible. We need forgiveness. You can't approach a holy God without forgiveness of your sins. All kinds of things here that are so important. But we, we sing about it. We, we, we understand this forgiveness. And it's not just the conditional forgiveness like, I'll forgive you this and this and this. What does it say? Forgiven of what? All our trespasses. Christian, you've been forgiven of it all. Past, present, future. Praise the Lord. Unbeliever, this is what you need. This is what you need. Here's how it happens. How could God forgive us all our trespasses? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt. Canceling here um, is a word that can be used to say erasing. And so the ink that they used in this time, um, I, my, my understanding is it didn't have any, I think it's alcohol in it, um, and it could just be wiped off. Um, so you, with, you could scrub away from a document the ink. And so if, if your name is on a document that condemns you, the picture here is your name is wiped off. It's wiped away. It's gone. Canceling the record of debt. Now the, the picture here is a certificate. How many of you have a mortgage that you have not paid off yet? Okay. How many of you have student loans that are not paid off yet? <laughs> okay. How many of you are in debt? That's, who's in debt? Okay. There we go. All right. That's a significant portion of us. We also live in a country that's in debt. Um, we understand this, but we don't understand the severity of debt too well. Um, you can read through the Proverbs and see what Solomon has to say about debt. The understanding here is connected to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. It's what you're racking up for yourself. And so what it says is, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. Now, be careful. Be careful. He doesn't just throw it out the window. Eh, it's not important. Set aside. We'll just forgive him. He set aside how? He nailed it to the cross. That's what we just saying. It is well. That third verse is so incredibly huge. Our sin has been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. 
That sign above Jesus on the cross is very well could be referring to it. That God, just as a sign was put above Jesus' head to identify who he was, that, that God put the certificate of your debt, the record of your debt on the cross. Jesus bore your debt. He bore your sin. He bore your trespasses. You bear them no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. Verse 15, because we got to finish. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The word disarm here um, means take away any sort of weapon. It also refers to a stripping. The word is, is stripped of their weapons. Um, very important to see. He, he strips the rulers, he puts them to open shame, and he triumphs over them. Very similar to Jesus being stripped of his clothes being put to open shame in front of his own people, naked, bleeding, bruised, beat up, accused of sins he did not commit, and then triumphed over as he, on the cross, and the soldiers gamble for his clothes, and people mock and spit on him. What they don't know is what God is doing is he's turning the tables on the satanic forces, on the rulers and authorities, and he strips them. He puts them to open shame and he triumphs over them in him. This word for triumph is more than just victory. Um, let me read you a description of what a triumph looked like in the Roman world. When, when, a, when a conqueror conquered an area, he came back to Rome and there was a triumphal entry for him. And there's a three-day triumphal entry that Plutarch describes, given for a Roman general who conquered Macedonia— and all of Rome showed up to watch. They built grandstands just to watch the triumph. Rome showed up dressed all in white. On the first day, 259 chariots went by, containing all the statues, pictures, and images that were captured. On day two, wagon upon wagon went by, containing helmets, breastplates, shields, bucklers, quivers of arrows, horses' bits, and more. After that came 3,000 more wagons carrying silver and other treasure. This is a parade. On day three, the captives were displayed following a 120 decorated sacrificial oxen. They had 120 oxen walking down the road. Their horns were gilded. They were gold horns. They were decorated. They're going to be sacrificed. More wagons contained captured gold, the captured king's chariot, his crown, his armor. Then came the servants weeping and begging for mercy. Then came the king's children. Then came King Perseus wearing all black and followed by many more prisoners. Last, who comes? The victorious general comes. Magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, all his army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands, divided into their bands and companies, followed by the chariot of their commander. Some were singing verses. Some were praising the commander. Three days to celebrate this victory. Listen, God did the same thing to the demonic forces. He's triumphed over them. And here's the picture. Is that there's a triumph with a general coming down the street, carrying behind him the captives, the demonic forces. And in the chariot is a man with scarred hands, a hole in his side, and scarred feet. And the triumph is displayed, putting the, the demons to shame. That is exactly what God has done in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, folks. He's conquered Satan, sin, and death. If you put your faith in him, you get all of this. You get forgiveness. 
Your sins are nailed to the cross. You bear them no more. You don't have to show up with a burden like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. It's rolled away. It's gone. This is a a fantastic, magnificent passage of God's victory so that we don't have to be afraid anymore. We must be on guard, but we mustn't be afraid anymore. Jesus has conquered fear. He has put the rules and authorities to open shame. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, I went late again. Um, Forgive me and and help us to take this to heart. What a what an amazing message. And, and this week as we go into the workforce, as we go to school, as we go on vacation, as we, as we go home, may this be real in our lives. We've been forgiven because of the sacrifice of your son on the cross. God, you love us. And we love you. And we want to serve you and we want to live our lives walking in truth, living in Jesus. Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to do this. This morning, I pray, as we now go and pray as a church family, bless our time together as we're able to intercede for our leaders, for our president, for our governor, for our representatives, for those in this congregation who have needs. Lord, we ask that as we get together intergenerationally, that you would bind our hearts together, that we would come before the throne of grace with confidence knowing you are a good, good God and you love to give good gifts to your children. You've conquered Satan's sin and death. We have no more to fear. So may we come to you boldly, rejoicing, pleading, because you've commanded us to and because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.